0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning. It is so good to be with you all together this morning on Christmas Eve. Spending the Lord's Day together, whichever day it falls on, is always a good thing. And so I'm so glad that you're here with us. If you're visiting with us here this morning, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you, you made it. I um, see a, a lot of faces I don't know, and I'm, I'm really, really glad that you have decided that of all the places you could be this morning, uh, getting some extra rest going into the weekend or whatever it might look like, uh, you decided to be here. Um, we are, we're grateful to have you here. If you do have a Bible with you, I'd love to have you open to the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke, Luke 2 this morning. You know we've been working our way through the, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, if you've been with us as a church, but we take a little pause sometimes around the holidays when the, when the text just maybe isn't quite what we what we want to talk about on a, on a given week. And so um, th- this is uh, just a, a unusual break for us to to not continue walking through a passage of Scripture uh, or, or through a book of the Bible, but we will still be looking at Scripture this morning morning. Luke 2 is going to be the place where we're going to look at. It's primarily, it's going to be the place that we keep coming back to. But this morning is a little bit different in the topic that we're talking about from Scripture because what I want to try to help us see is something that sometimes we miss when we look at little snippets of Scripture. It's a good thing to go deeply into a verse and see what that looks like and what it says and study a word and understand what God is saying to us in that. But sometimes we miss the larger patterns You may or may not know that the book of Luke is actually connected to the book of Acts. So they they form this one long story from the beginning of Luke to the end of Acts. And I actually think if you read them together as a whole, you'll notice some things that you didn't notice before. And that's what I want to try to help us to see this morning is to maybe look at these few verses that we've just had read from Luke 2 a little differently because we see them in the whole context of what the author Luke and ultimately the author the Holy Spirit is accomplishing here in, this, uh, in these verses. Well, you know, some things are inevitable. Some things are going to happen. So for instance, if your Christmas shopping isn't done yet, Christmas is coming. It's going to happen tomorrow. There's not much you can do. Time is going to go on. The next day is going to happen. Some things are going to happen. We talk about death and taxes and all those things they say. Some things are inevitable. Sometimes even with Christmas, you know something crazy happens and it messes up your plans. So, for instance, uh, 13 years ago now, we were uh, going to be spending our entire Christmas in the hospital having a baby. And we didn't know that at this point 13 years ago. Because that's how all these things work. Our plans get derailed. But it didn't stop the 25th of December coming. It came and everything was closed. And we were in the hospital having a baby. There's a teenager tomorrow. That's crazy. foolishness. (laughs) foolishness. <laughs> the kingdom of God is something that is inevitable. When there's something that is inevitable, it occupies your mind. Christmas is coming. If you don't, if you're not ready, you're thinking about it. You're like, oh shoot, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. It, it's filling. It's, it's occupying your mind. I want to suggest to you this morning, the thing that you and I all need to be thinking about is the kingdom of God. I put up here as a title, God's Unstoppable Mission, because that's what I want us to hear this morning. We should be able to look at a thing like this and see that what's happening in Luke 2 when Mary puts a baby boy in a manger, in a feeding trough, the thing that's happening is God is taking one more decisive step in this plan that he has had from the very beginning. He will not be stopped, and it is a part of what he is doing we see it in so many of these familiar places, familiar words, but we need to hear this. There are certainly different folks here this morning who need to hear this in different ways. There are some of us who are, have our minds filled with planning. We are here in, in, in body, but in our minds we are, oh, I got I to gotta still make this. I got to do this. I got to wrap this. I got to do that. All of the things that are remaining to be done in the next 24 hours but not just planning in that sense. There's also planning for the things that we know are gonna happen in the next year. As in walking with, with together as a church, I know many of you have some really big steps you're gonna be taking in 2024. There are people looking at new relationships, marriages. There are children on the way. There are adoptions that are happening. There are people who are uprooting themselves and moving to the other side of the world. There are big things happening in this group of people in the next year. And the planning for those things can fill our minds. We don't know what comes next. It can be fearful. Some of us, though, might have a little bit of that Charlie Brown syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Like, Christmas is here. I don't feel like Christmas is here. Not joyful. I'm not too excited about it. I don't know what to do. It's supposed to be a season of joy, but it seems like there's something missing. Hang on, I think, this, I think this word is for you this morning. You might be here, though, and you're bringing a measure of skepticism. You're not so sure about this Bible stuff. All right, it's Christmas Eve, whatever, I'm here. There's a preacher, he's talking to us. I don't know what to make of all this stuff. That's, I'm glad you're here. You think maybe this story sounds nice, but you aren't really sure that we should make it this big of a deal at Christmas every single year. I say, yeah, we, we, we need to. The first thing that I want us to see from these passages, from the book of, books of Luke and Acts together, is about God's unstoppable mission. And in particular, it is that God's unstoppable mission shook the world. Part of what Luke is doing, and why does he start out this Luke 2 account with Caesar Augustus and Quirinius in Syria, it's not just to trip up people who have to read it out loud, although that may be something that it does. He's concerned with historical accuracy. He wants to put it in the context of real people. But there's a larger thing of what he's doing. Like if you look at a place like Acts 28, the very last verses of this Luke-Acts two books, what do you call that? It's not a trilogy, duology? There should be a word for that. A series? Is it a series? I don't know. Acts 28, verses 28 to 31 says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will also listen. In verse 30, he says, and he, that is Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. That's how it ends. That's the, that's the end of Acts. It's not like there's a, there's a big finale. Paul gets to Rome. He's there. He moves in. He starts doing ministry and that's the end. But what's happening there? What's the connection? Do you hear it? That this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Just before, there's a quotation from Isaiah 6 talking about sending the message, where Isaiah talks all the time about sending the message to the Gentiles. This isn't just something that happens at the end. All around this Luke 2 Christmas story, you have the angel talking to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name will be Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The ruler of Israel is who Jesus is, connected back to this Old Testament promise. So Mary looks back to the Psalms. He has given help to Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. <clears throat> Later on in Luke 2, there's a fascinating story. Just hang with me for a minute here. I want you to see that this comes from the Bible. You hear that? If you hear somebody who's, who's, a, who's preaching, who's up front, the whole idea here is not that you just hear the person up here come up with some clever things to say. The whole purpose is that we go back to the Bible and we say, what does it say? What word does God have for us? I hope we never get bored of hearing what God says. Later in Luke 2, we read this account of Simeon. He was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon in verse 25. The man was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, this hope of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ the Lord's Messiah. And he came in spirit into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, this, this custom that they're doing at the, when he was born, right? The, you have all of these circumcision and things that happen in their, in their customs. He says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Hear what, hear what he says. He's now quoting the Bible My eyes have seen your salvation he's he's looking back to the bible which you have prepared in the presence of all people that is a light of revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people israel he's looking back at the promises of god to isaiah but what is he seeing he's seeing this big big worldwide picture it's not just god's people It was never just about this little people in this little place. God's vision from the beginning was everyone, everywhere, every tribe, every tongue, every nation would be represented. God is rescuing all people from all places. There is a momentum here. All of this looks backward to the Old Testament, latching on to the promises of God, and then bringing them forward, seeing them realized in the present, and then having confidence that God is going to continue to do that in the future. Luke wants us to see that the gospel here, this work of Jesus, is transforming everything. That's why all the details, that's why it's so important. He wants you to see, is this, well, it's not, it's not political. Yeah, it is political. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He wants you to see, well, it's, it's uh, not an economic thing. Yeah, it is economic. Jesus brings a message to the poor. It's a message that touches every aspect of your life, your business, your relationships. Everything is transformed by Jesus. That's what Luke wants us to see. That's part of why all of these details are here because Jesus touches on all of it. It's going to transform everything. And here's the remarkable thing. It did. It has. And it will even more. But it did and it has. We know from history that shortly after the time of the New Testament, the entire Roman Empire is affected in some way by these Christians. There are Christians popping up from, from Britain to parts of the Middle East, we can see people in India and Africa and all over the world start to become Christians. It has this effect, and it has continued to do that. It affects so many, and it has affected so many of the ways that we live life. Education is affected by the by the Bible. You know what the word Bible means? The word Bible just is, is a variation of the, of the Greek word biblos for book. It's just a book. You know why you would call it the book? Because no one ever thought to put a bunch of books together like this and bind them together until Christians were like, man, we got to figure out what to do with these Gospels, with these New Testaments. Let's figure out a way to put them together. The very fact that you read books or you have, have read books or have book access to books is because of what Jesus has done. Hospitals, medicine, the idea that health care isn't just for the rich. That's a Christian idea. There's a lot we can say about that one. I'll just leave that. But that impulse to care for the weak, you don't get that. That doesn't come from anywhere else. That comes from Jesus saying the last will be first and the first will be last. The people with power shouldn't be just allowed to use that power however they want. The idea that history is headed somewhere. Do you realize the very way that we measure time has been shaped by Jesus? And this is a great metaphor. This works so well. Do you, you realize when you study history, if you look at something, we use the abbreviations BC and AD, but not so much anymore. They'll use BCE, so the original, right? BC, before Christ, and, and domini, the year of our Lord. Right? What they'll do now is they'll say the common era and before the common era. Now, there are reasons. That's a good idea. There are reasons you might want to do that before, but my whole question is, you didn't move the years. What happened in year one that made that be the one where you want to say, you know what, history reset at this point. Something new happened at this point. And all you've done is you've relabeled it. I hope you realize this morning that that relabeling is what all of us are tempted to do with Christianity. There are uncomfortable parts that we want to get rid of and remove to make it feel more comfortable for us. Oh, it's fine because it feels nice and they talk about Jesus and we read the stories and we do those things, but let's just, let's change it so it's not quite so uncomfortable. Let's remove those parts. But we miss that so much of how we live is shaped by it. It could be like that old story of two fish where the old one says to the young one, boy, the water is lovely today. The young one looks around and says, what's water? That's really the way that many of us, particularly in the West, live with Christianity, so many of the ideas, the thoughts, the things, we, we, we accept them commonly. But when it comes to Jesus, we say, huh, hold on, maybe that's going a little too far. You, me, all of us must reckon with Jesus. That's an old word, reckon with it. You gotta figure out how to account for it hold on a second, there's this thing and it doesn't quite fit in my books. I can't get it in the boxes. I gotta figure out how to to get it, how how to make it make sense. You and I have to reckon with Jesus. We don't get to just put it aside and pretend like it's not something that we have to worry about. You guys, the thing that Jesus did here in Luke has impacted the entire world. It's not even a question. It has. And the question is, what are you gonna make of that? What does that mean for you? It can certainly give us confidence as we walk into things that might give us fear in the new year. But for some of us, we've maybe put off dealing with the Bible. We've put off wanting to do anything to do with this. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to have anything to do with any of that. And reckoning with it might realize finally taking the time to talk to someone to ask the hard questions, to try to work through the things that don't quite make sense and to ask yourself, what if, what if Jesus is trying to, trying to rescue me? What if he wants me? Would you believe it? As a, as a simple thing that we could all do to try to apply this truth this morning, one thing that we could do right off the bat here is that we could pay attention to Christ everywhere. Listen, he is everywhere, whether you know it or not. We see it especially at Christmas time, where they put up all the stuff and the names and the songs and the everything, but all year long, he's everywhere. Pay attention. Write it down when you see it. Pray about it. God, are you showing me something? Are you real? God, help me to to feel you, to see you, to know you, to trust you. Share it with others. There are certainly a lot of reasons that we might all have doubts about this. We might be thinking, well, good for all these folks a long time ago. I don't feel any of that. You might say, well, yeah, Christianity's done all this stuff, but it hasn't all been good, has it? Well, no. Not all of it has been. But as all of us seek to follow Christ better, what we what we hope that we would do is to look to him. We've gotten it wrong, we'll get it wrong again. What's the difference, though? What's the thing that helps the Christian to get it right? What's the thing that sets this apart from, uh, from just a, a kind of vague sense of what Christianity is? That takes us to the second thing that I want us to see here from, this, from Luke Acts. And that is about God's unstoppable mission, particularly that God's unstoppable mission is centered on the cross, God's unstoppable mission is centered on Israel and on the cross. You can see in Luke 2, again, Luke pays so many attentions to details that many of us wouldn't. Where are they traveling? Up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea. They're going to Bethlehem. All these places that they go, there's significance to them. He's doing that again and again. This Bethlehem, the birthplace of King David, is to be the birthplace of the king, and that's what's happening here. If you look with me at Luke 9, there's a fascinating thing that happens with this. And I hope, that, you'll, I hope that, that it stands out to you. In Luke 9, beginning in verse 28, we read this. Some days after these sayings, Jesus took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mount, on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. He speaks of his departure. The Greek word there is the word for exodus. He's recalling this rescue of Israel. He's looking back to these guys, Moses. He knows a thing or two about an exodus. And Jesus is talking to him about the exodus that's coming. One of the things that we find from this passage, though, that continues is astounding. By verse 51 of Luke 9, he says, The days were approaching for his ascension. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. By 953, the Samaritans did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. By 1322, he was passing through one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. While he was on the way to Jerusalem in 1711, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. 1831, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. After he said these things in verse 19, 20, chapter 1928, he was going ahead and going up to Jerusalem. 1941, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And this leads right up immediately after that to Jesus entering Jerusalem, going into the temple, and clearing out the money changers. This action that was prophetic, that he knew would get him in trouble. Because immediately after, they saw him do that and they said, We can't let him keep doing this. Luke centers around Jerusalem. In 24 18, he says, after his resurrection to the risen Jesus, the men on the road to Emmaus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that happen there these days? And at the end of Luke, Jesus says in 2446, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Why? Do you you hear the pattern? This is repeated, right? After this moment, Jesus has his face set. It says he's determined. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what needs to happen, he knows what needs to be fulfilled. This sacrifice, this thing that he's doing as the Passover lamb at this new Exodus, is this moment. He knows exactly what's going to happen. It's at the center of what he's doing. Even when he's ministering to other places, he's headed this direction. He's got his eyes set on the cross. One of the things that you and I might be tempted to do with Jesus is to diminish him, to think of him as just a prophet or just a model of how to be a good person. Maybe he's a wise teacher. I hope that this From Luke helps us to see that we cannot do that. It's like ordering a cheeseburger without the burger. People do that? That's a cheese sandwich. That's not a burger. If you take the cross out of the ministry of Jesus, you don't have a savior, you have a model, you have someone who tries to tell you to do better. He doesn't give you hope, he doesn't give you salvation. He just says, hey, here's something you can try. It worked for me. And and, and, and it's so easy to be okay with that, but we should never be. That's not how the Bible presents Jesus. Jesus from the beginning identifies himself with Israel. The promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. That's how there's hope. That's how Abraham's family is a blessing to the world. That's how God will reach every tribe and tongue and nation. That's how this happens is because of what Jesus has done. You can't take just a little bit of Jesus. Again and again in the Bible, humanity fails. Israel fails. People fail. You and I fail. We don't even live up to our own standards. But Jesus takes the curse of the law on himself. And we have to have that if there is to be any hope. If this was so central to Jesus, it should be central to you and I as well. This is essentially why Paramount named ourselves Paramount Church. We say it again and again, but I hope we never get tired of saying it. Because the the gospel, the cross, the thing that Jesus accomplished here that gives salvation to all people is the only thing that we should have be focused on. Not at the, I hate the way I said that, not at the exclusion of other things, but when we focus on the cross... When it becomes the most important thing, everything else falls into place to where it should be. If you're looking ahead to the places that God has called you, looking at the cross changes everything. You and I are tempted to see things through a lens of fear, but if Jesus Christ was crucified and risen, even death can't stop him from doing his work. Even if you and I don't have everything in our lives looking exactly the way that we want it to look, the way you thought things would turn out, raising your kids, your career, your relationships, how you spend your time. If your goal is the glory of Christ, then you can't lose because that's his mission. And it will not stop. It will not fail. And if you are tied and united to that, you cannot fail in that. Things may drop off along the way. There will be disappointments. Things won't turn out the way that we thought. But God will be glorified. I don't know who's here this morning. So that's one of those moments. Sometimes I get across. I get up with something in the notes, and I go, "Oh man, do we want to say that?" I, th- I think we do. I think we do. I'm going I'm to trust. We prayed about this this week, and this is what we need to say. Some of us ha- are bothered by the fact that there might be a God who we might who who is all who who can't be who allows evil. It's a God who allows evil. That's what I'm getting at here. How could that work? How would that make any sense? That's kind of held up as the big big objection to Christianity. How could this be that there's a God who who allows these things? Because the way that it's framed is often that either God wants to do something about the evil, but he can't, so he's not all-powerful, or he could do something, but he doesn't want to, so he's not good. This works against some views of God. If you have a God who just created everything and left it, that's not a good God. He's not a God who cares. If you want to try to hold on to a broad sense of the universe as this sense of God, oh, I believe in God, sure. I believe there's some kind of spiritual reality. Is is it good or or powerful? The answer is no. It even has some teeth against like a Muslim view of God. Because that's a God who says, man, you couldn't do it. Here's some more rules. Do it better this time. Get it together down there. That's not the Luke 2 God. That's not the Jesus God. Because listen, this is not a God who couldn't do something. This is a God who absolutely could do something. He could see actually all of the possibilities. He could do anything that he needed to do. He had a sinless view of what the world looked like. And instead of just sitting there, he entered into the brokenness. If you're a parent, you sometimes have to have uh, doctors like give babies shots. You cannot explain that to them. You can't tell them, here's why. Let me tell you all the reasons but you and I like to assume that we know what God's up to. Maybe he is up for your good. How can I know that? The baby in the manger. He became one of us. He took on flesh. He bore our sickness. He bore our pain. The crucified God is a different kind of God. He's a God who leans into suffering, who suffers with us. There is none like him. Let's not pretend like there is. If this is the real God, and it is because we see him, then your pain matters. Do you hear that? Even if he barely made it here this morning because of, of depression or worry or broken relationships, failed hopes, God is present in our suffering. He uses it in powerful ways to accomplish his purposes. We can see it in what he did in Jesus. Salvation then, the cross is everything. Jesus took it on himself. It should revamp the way that we see everything. It should call us to a posture of service. What I'd like for you to do this morning as a second application or a second way to to think about this is to simply reflect Reflect on the simplicity of this statement. He completed our salvation, so we cannot. Here, think about it for a second. It's a, li- it's a little vague, which kind of makes you th- have to think about it for a second. Your salvation is something that's done, that means you can't come and do it more. It's accomplished, it's complete. Have you ever had the experience of staring at a word on a page? For a little, I can remember doing this as a kid, actually, in a, a sermon when I was having trouble paying attention because the preacher kept going on and he was taking forever. I remember looking at the word John as the title. Some people have it in a name, but I remember looking at the word John, and that H just starts to seem really out of place. Like, what's that, that word? What is that word? You just stare? Have you ever done that? Some people like stare at, stare at your hand or, or stare at your foot. We used to do this kind of stuff before, those smartphones. I don't, nobody's, nobody's this bored anymore. You're lost when me just stare at my hand for a little while and, and it, it's weird because it starts to not look like my hand anymore. Let's do that with the gospel. Stare at it. Reflect on it until it becomes something that's strange and foreign and we can't quite make sense of it. It's free. Completely free. You can't do anything to get to God. You can simply trust and believe in him for your salvation. If you have that, everything you could possibly need is already yours in Christ. Why do I feel like I still have to hang on to control? Why do I still hurt? There's still so many questions. All of this is gonna take us right back to Luke 2 as we begin to close our time. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken of the inhabited world. You hear it. It's history. This is where we are. By verse 6 we hear, and while they were there, the days were completed for her, for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The way it tells that story, thats this is the Bible's way of kind of slowing down the narrative. It's like when you watch a movie and it goes into a a close-up shot and it's slow motion. Pay attention to this moment. That's this moment. She has the baby. She puts him in cloths, lays him in a manger. This is such a significant moment. Luke could approach it differently. Other authors do. John, when he talks about this moment, he discusses God becoming flesh, the word taking on flesh. He describes it as uh, tabernacling, like the Old Testament. God would would come down on a tent of meeting with his people, and this glorious cloud of all of us would be present. That's the sort of thing that happens when, when Jesus comes here. He drives down stakes like a tabernacle. Paul will later say that Jesus existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. But Luke doesn't do that. He gives us prophecies for context, and then he describes Mary placing the baby in a manger. What an amazing entrance. This is a decisive step in God's mission. It's not the first thing he's done, he's been working from the beginning. But this moment starts something new. He's present. And again and again, we see the insignificance that Jesus would go to this people who were not significant, that he would go to, to uh, this part of the world. Like not only is it an insignificant people, but it's kind of like a backwoods part of those insignificant people. I mean, you know, you, you know like backwoods kind of people, they live out in the hills and it gets a little, get a little different sometimes. That's kind of where Jesus decided to go. It's a strange group of people. That's where he wants to be. He lived his entire life that way. God is with us. And the third thing we can say here then is that we find God's unstoppable mission in the quiet, insignificant, and broken places of the world. We find God's unstoppable mission in the quiet, insignificant, and broken places of the world. Listen, the world is going to push you to look at things in a different way. They're going to try to tell you this is what success looks like. This is what you need to be by this age. This is where you need to be at at this point. If you're living in this neighborhood, this is what you should look like. They're going to give us all of these different things. But for the Christian, those big things are not so significant. God's faithfulness finds itself in little places. You know, in the last several years, I've had the opportunity to go to many different parts of the world. We sometimes will play, you know, videos of missionaries and different folks who are working in different places. Um, And one of the things that astounds me when you get to go spend time with somebody is, you know what? You know what life looks like there? It looks a whole lot like it looks here. I mean, there are differences, don't get me wrong. But the struggling of family and life and figuring out uh, how, to, how to fix the car that broke or the house, that the, the sink that's not doing this or whatever the thing is. like It's the regular everyday stuff that those folks have to be faithful in. Now, there are additional things of language and other things they're taking on, and we thank God for that. But really, it is the small stuff. How are we faithful? Listen, in, in your families, in our relationships, Your marriage is not a success because of how many Instagrammable vacations you'll go on in 2024. Those things are good, don't get me wrong. Some of you love your vacations. But really, in the regular moments of life, when conflict happens, when the kids are doing the same thing for the 18th time and you already told them, (laughs) how are you going to handle that moment? How can we be faithful? How can we be faithful? The answer to that comes down to one simple question. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you were created by God to live for him perfectly, but that you, like everyone else, rebelled against him and decided to live life your own way? And that very thing, that decision, has wrecked all of the world. But God instead of leaving us there, took on flesh, became one of us, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and took on all of the punishment and all of the penalty for our sin so that if we would just believe in him, our sin goes to him. The punishment that should have been ours goes to him and then he didn't just stay in the grave. He rose again. That gives us all a guarantee of new life. How do we be faithful? Do you believe the gospel? Because if you believe the gospel, then you have an identity that didn't come from something that you earned. You can give up control. You can give up status. You can give up your view of yourself as sophisticated and happy and successful and wise and all put together. Because really all of that comes down to this self-protective Defensiveness, it comes down to fear. And it's no way to live. What if they knew who I really am? Not a way to live. The Christian is freed from those games. If you believe the gospel, even this morning for the first time, you will begin to be freed from those games. We don't act out of fear, we don't have an image to protect. We know that our actions earned us nothing but death and judgment. Listen, we worship an infant in a feeding trough this morning. On the outside, it looks like nothing. It appears to be foolishness. But one step that we can take, one simple thing that we can do this morning is to pray for God's lordship over everything, even the small things and the hard things. Pray for God's lordship over everything, even the small things and the hard things. Just like Jesus takes this step in becoming human, each day we have moments to be faithful or not as well. Thankfully, though, it doesn't rest on our ability to get everything right because he has done it for us. Christians in all different places, all through history, have said it over and over again. This is the only way to be human. This is the only way to live. There is no other way that brings peace like this this brings peace. Giving up the power that we think we deserve and walking in in some of the most broken and hurting places of the world. You can be faithful in those small moments because he is. You can have joy because your joy isn't tied to those outside things. Your joy is with Him and He's with you. Yep. Some things are inevitable. Tomorrow's going to be the 25th. There's nothing you can do about it. We said before, even our calendar is shaped by the coming of Christ. The year that we have each year kind of revolves around two poles of Christmas and Easter. Even if you don't want it to, they still have things like spring break. Why is it there? Oh, gosh. I didn't know I could do that. (laughs) So those are good reminders. But on the whole, for the Christian, our whole view of life comes around these two other poles. That is the first time Jesus came and the second time that he comes. These two things, these two moments, that first coming here in the manger, and again when he comes to rule, they're like anchors bolted in that tie us to the mountain. We cannot fall when we are united to Christ. When we're tied to him, we cannot fall. We will make it. He drove that anchor when he entered the world. If we are united to him, tied to him, we can't fall. And you might feel like you don't have joy, but when you're anchored to Christ, it is his joy because he drove the the stakes and he anchored himself to us. We know that we don't have to fear to speak up, to take big steps of faithfulness. We might be afraid that we'll say or do something unwise somewhere along the way, but if you are anchored and tied to Christ, you cannot lose. Really, all of the threads of history from the beginning to the end tie themselves to these two moments. They unite there. Your life, whether you know it or not, is shaped by these two moments. What will you make of Christ? And what, how will you respond? When he comes again, whether we want to believe it or not, there's a moment coming when at the throne of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, is King. The Son of God loves pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Let's pray. Our God, this morning, I pray that you will help your word to find its way into our minds and our hearts. Help to shape our imagination and our motivation Alter our affections so that we desire you as we should. God, I know that I've probably said some things that could have been clearer or may come out confusing, but I pray that your spirit will do the work of helping to clarify. Help us all to have a clear vision of your gospel, a clear vision of the hope that we have because you, because God took on flesh that Jesus died in our place, that he is risen again, and we know that the Holy Spirit is here among us, helping lead us and draw us. We praise you for this morning. We thank you for the work that you're doing, and we pray for your blessing on this holiday as we remember you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.